Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on the podcast is Dr. Sherman Swanson. He's an extension riparian specialist with the University of Nevada, Reno. Welcome, Sherm. Hey, Tip. Our paths have crossed a couple times in the uh, 15, 17 years that I've been working for uh, Washington State University Extension, uh, mostly in the context of doing riparian management uh, educational courses, but uh, there are not many people in the country who are extension risparian specialists that have a background in rangeland ecology. That's a, a really specific and unique role. Uh, how did you end up becoming a riparian extension specialist, Sure. Well, I uh, came to Nevada as a range extension specialist in 1983. And after a while doing issue-based programming, I found that most of what I um, was focusing on was riparian management. It seemed to be the uh, center of the issue for most public land rangeland management questions. And, um, and then I uh, tried to learn how, to, how streams worked and uh, we invited Dave Rosgen to UNR to teach classes in stream dynamics and classification. And um, I was giving a talk about how to use that uh, set of concepts for uh, grazing management at uh, the Society for Range Management meeting down in Phoenix way back in 1995. And Steve Leonard stood up at the end of the talk and said, we teach the same concepts with riparian proper functioning condition assessment. And afterwards, we find ranchers and environmentalists going to the creek and agreeing about what they see. And I thought that was pretty powerful. Um, getting people to see through the same lens is, is uh, always a powerful way to improve communications. And uh, soon after that, the National Riparian Service Team did uh, train the trainers workshop in, uh, at the Phoenix Training Center down in, uh, in Phoenix. And um, I made a point of, of being there and, and soon after was part of the Nevada team. And I found uh, riparian proper functioning condition assessment to be a really good way to focus on the physical functions of riparian areas so that we could um, talk about um, attributes and processes without getting so hung up with differences in values. Uh, and it turns out that everybody needs the same functions from riparian areas. And that works so well for bringing a diversity of people to the conversation that um, I just kept um, moving down that road and, and uh, trying to make progress with that and trying to find ways to uh, do management that was going to work and uh, for a whole variety of issues and for a whole variety of kinds of riparian areas and actually for a whole variety of kinds of land ownerships. It turns out that uh, riparian functions are at least as valuable on private lands typically as they are on public lands, maybe more so because of the nature of private lands and the fact that we have so much of our best waters and best riparian areas on private lands. I've done a little bit of PFC training as well, and it seems like that is one of the the most valuable components that it creates a, a communication tool where there's, I guess, a, a common point of reference so that everybody's talking about the same things, even if we have different ideas about how to get there. Uh, but you don't, you don't get there until you have some idea of what there is. I'm curious if you think that Rangeland Health concepts are as similar or uh, serve the same purpose uh, as a riparian proper functioning condition, which I think has been uh, very successful. I think uh, rangeland health concepts are useful. I'm not sure if they're as useful. Um, <clears throat> one of the things about riparian areas is their uh, tendency to incise if the management uh, allows them to not be in particularly good conditions when the, when the high water comes. And we know that high waters are coming. The question um, is not whether the incision happened during a flood. It's a question of whether incision would have happened during the flood. But the fact of channel incision 
changing so many things about the way a riparian area works, it makes that um, threshold concept very graphic. We also talk about thresholds in rangelands. Uh, one of the ones we talk about so often in Nevada is the threshold where you have a perennial plant community, uh, but uh, due to weakening of the uh, perennial herbaceous plants and increases in the shrubs, we end up with a weak level of resilience and resistance. And then when we have a trigger event such as a fire, we often find that we have crossed a threshold. So the concept of threshold is, I think, right at the heart of both upland rangeland health and riparian um, health or riparian functionality. Yeah. My most recent interview was with uh, Nathan Sayre, who has written a fair bit about the threshold concept. And uh, that when I first read about that a number of years ago, I think the illustration that he used was uh, was wind and soil erosion, and he he made the case or illustrated with with saying that it, it you know say five miles an hour wind speed you don't get any sediment moving and maybe ten or fifteen miles an hour uh, you still don't have any sediment erosion but that you know somewhere depending on uh, the weight of soil particles and the degree of attachment or detachment there's a threshold where now it, you have a lot of dirt moving and it wasn't that you have a third the dirt moving at five miles an hour but now at 20 miles an hour uh, we have dirt moving where nothing happened at 19 miles an hour uh, that seems widely applicable one of the things that i think is interesting is that rangeland-based livestock production is uh is unique in in the realm of food and fiber production you know sustainable long-term ranching as a business depends on keeping a really complex and somewhat unpredictable landscape healthy and by landscape that includes everything i think in order to be uh, in order to be healthy that includes riparian zones uplands and everything that goes with it you know, this is really different than agro ecosystems because we're we're thinking in long time frames we're thinking at the landscape scale you know heterogeneity is the ideal rather than homogeneity uh, defining health is not simple at all and, and measuring health uh, may be um, may be pretty difficult you know we're trying to capitalize on natural processes rather than uh, spending money on inputs to fight or enhance uh, the natural processes um, so here's a here's a scenario. Rancher Bob took over a grazing permit that had not changed hands in a hundred years, and he says it looked pretty rough when he got it. And he and his family have been managing it differently for say the past ten years that they've had the permit. And uh, they say you should have seen what it looked like ten years ago. And most of the time, what they mean, what people mean by that, is that it looks better today that it's been improving they've got you know more grass less weeds more perennials fewer invasive annuals higher species diversity or or maybe you know more streamside vegetation uh, a narrower and deeper stream channel uh, a more solid green line with less bank disturbance but most of the time they don't have any evidence to back that up and we're we're beginning a series of episodes on rangeland uh, and riparian monitoring and riparian function with the intent of offering some uh, some guidance to ranchers and and uh, what I call natural resource professionals on the on the front end of the field season so that people can um, maybe put some of their new new year's resolutions into practice and and get monitoring implemented I've been around range monitoring systems for a while and you don't very often see them getting implemented well, so often that's true. I, I think part of the reason for that is that we make them sometimes too complex. Sure. And sometimes they're not focused on a clear intent for how we're going to use the data. So you talk about um, the ranch that can't tell their story. And uh, 
these days, ranches have to be able to tell their story. If they're public land ranches, uh, they're probably going to come up against permit renewal at some point. And on private lands, there are um, other uh, issues that sometimes cause people from off the ranch to have questions about what's going on on the ranch. And ranchers want to be able to tell their story. And of course, photographs are an excellent way to do that. And uh, probably the single best way to do that. But of course, any photograph has to have a label, a, a date and a time and a location in order for that photograph to be useful. And so just taking pictures isn't quite getting it, but taking pictures at, at uh, photo points and specifically at photo points that are intended to show the response to management are particularly critical. Yeah, and and you know one of the questions is what are we, what are we trying to measure? Um, I think one of the difficult things is that it feels like rangeland health might be a little bit independent, even of of management goals, or that or that's a broader category than management goals. You know, so we could say we want to identify some desired future condition, um, but we may not want a change from from the current condition necessarily you know if somebody has uh, you, we, we can monitor progress toward a goal but what if we're at the goal but we want to be doing some kind of monitoring that serves as an early warning sign of um, you know approaching that threshold is that even a, a, a valid way of thinking well certainly it's important to think about what drives our rangelands to change either change in a positive direction because our management is is enabling things like plant succession to work or seedings to get established or uh, plants to become um, healthy because they were able to grow leaf area and then use leaf area to grow roots. Um, but if we've got change in a, in a different direction, maybe because of an invasive species moving into the country, uh, tracking where that uh, species has gotten um, and what the effects of that are on the plant community is something that we have on our radar screen because we've been paying attention to the, to the buzz in the county. Um, but getting a, a information about that on the ground is important, uh, and there are various ways of getting that. The, the expansion of pinyon juniper trees has been a big issue in some parts of the West, and, and where that's happening, we can see that very graphically from space or from on-the-ground photographs. So would you recommend to ranchers uh, to measure things that they're specifically concerned about rather than trying to do some kind of uh, full meal deal that's attempting to measure numerous aspects of, of healthy rangeland? Or, or should we assume that, that we can't assume that we know what's going to change and therefore we need to measure a little bit of everything? I think there's a hazard in trying to measure a little bit of everything. Yeah. and. Um, and sometimes uh, agencies are so um, uh, eager to make sure that they've measured the right thing, that they measure too many possible right things, and then their protocol is so long and expensive that they don't monitor anything. Right. And I think if ranchers get into that situation, there's a problem also. Maybe the best place to start is with a conversation with um, your family and with your resource professionals in agencies, state or federal, um, about what it is that is important in this landscape that um, causes us to want to track it, that gives us a question to answer. Um, in our Nevada Rangeland Monitoring Handbook that came out uh, in 2018, the third edition, um, we have now have a flowchart and uh, below the box that talks about all the different kinds of things that we might want to consider as we're uh, writing a management plan, uh, there's a little box that says priorities. We maybe want to do a lot of things, but we may not be able to do all of them. But what are the really important things that we need to do? And uh, the best way to figure that out is to have a conversation with people that you trust because they're paying attention and they have the best interest of the rangeland and the whole triple bottom line community of economics and, and, uh, and neighbors getting along with each other and, 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 and. And from that conversation about what's really important and what are the questions, 
you can lead yourself to objectives and you can write smart objectives, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant to the management you're applying and timely. And those smart objectives then should drive the long-term monitoring about the ecosystem, the plant community, the, the range. Um, and, uh, and then the monitoring that you uh, put on the ground ought to answer the question, are we moving toward or away from our objectives? Yeah, you've got a, uh, a seven-step process describing kind of the, the train of thought and action that is pretty useful for any kind of monitoring, whether it's riparian or rangeland monitoring. Can you describe that process? Yeah, the seven-step process is actually not one that I invented. It's in the uh, 2015 um, Riparian Proper Functioning Condition Assessment Handbook uh, that the uh, BLM and the Forest Service uh, put out with the uh, NRCS. Uh, and so that one's for riparian areas. But the, the idea for riparian areas or uplands is to be able to adapt your management. So that seven-step process starts with an assessment, trying to understand the land and the needs of the land. So for riparian areas, the, the first step is to do riparian proper functioning condition assessment. Um, we talked earlier about how that's so useful for helping people see things and agree about things and understand what may be missing or what could be there with some natural changes, uh, maybe because of time, maybe because of the expression of good management, or maybe because of a change in management. Um, but start with PFC. There's also non-physical things that are important to people that are sort of uh, values, and it might be water quality. I know that's been a big issue in, in many states uh, over, the, over the decades and uh, might be habitat for fish or wildlife. It might be forage uh, for the ranch. It might be, oh gosh, there's all kinds of things that people care about, particularly in riparian areas. And so that combination of riparian functions and riparian values guides us to this question of what's important. And so the third step is, again, to set priorities. The priorities then lead to objectives and now we're ready to think about various kinds of management that we could use to accomplish objectives. And then over the long term, we would monitor to see how well we are meeting those objectives. And of course, uh, in riparian areas, what usually drives the process forward first is vegetation. So probably the monitoring is going to need to capture information about vegetation. That's true on uplands too. But it's, um, it's uh, part of this seven-step process that you monitor your objectives and focus on the drivers of the process. And then you use your monitoring data to think about what you might need to change if you're not meeting objectives or if you've met your objectives and now it's time to move forward with an, uh, a, a higher goal, uh, a, an objective that fits the, the new opportunity or that allows you to capture and use the flexibility you've built because of the progress you've already made. Maybe you don't have to be quite as careful or quite as narrow in your management as you used to be. But at any rate, you use your monitoring information to adapt your management. And, uh, and that's a continuing cycle, goes on and on and on. And, uh, and you're spiraling up, hopefully, with that process, uh, that cycle of, of adaptive management. What are some reliable indicators of, of rangeland health that seem to be applicable across vegetation types? And, you know, maybe one angle of that is that uh, it seems like we want to be measuring things that are less sensitive to annual fluctuations in, uh, say, the amount of precipitation. You know, so you, you wouldn't use uh, grass height, for example, as a as an indicator of rangeland health. Um, one of the things that's commonly recommended is basal area or the amount of soil surface that's occupied by the rooted part of the plant. Um, is that a good indicator? And what are some other indicators that are worth thinking about? I think um, 
the first part of the answer to your question is you uh, would want to focus on the plants that are driving the system. And most of our rangelands, um, not all of them, uh, if we have the opportunity, we'd want to grow perennials. I guess uh, not all of them. In some places, we've crossed a threshold and we have California annual grasslands. We have Great Basin annual grasslands and, and places where we have a cheatgrass uh, cycle. Um, we don't have that opportunity anymore. But in other places, we do have the opportunity to grow perennials. And the first thing I'd want to know is what is the relative composition of the species in the plant community? Um, now, that relative composition is going to change through time because of the growth of the plants, and some of that is going to be due to the weather in a particular year. In any given year, the most influential factor in the production of plants is the weather we've had that year for um, growing conditions uh, that year and recent years. We can't do much about the weather. We can do things about the management. And the management does make a difference over the long term. And so we want to know over the long term, how's the variation in whatever we measure? Basal area is a good thing uh, to measure. Uh, it is more consistent than uh, plant height, for instance. Um, it's also um, probably a little more consistent for uh, being able to monitor that at different times of the year whereas other things are a little sensitive to exactly what day you happen to go out there. Basal area doesn't change quite so much. Uh, ground cover is, in general is something that uh, people look at. Cover in general is something that people have measured um, perhaps most commonly. Uh, but of course, cover is a little bit confusing because there's different ways of measuring cover and, and not all cover data are comparable because mm -hmm. um, some of it's about one kind of cover and some of it's about another kind of cover. I think the main thing is to think about the, the drivers of change and what is it about that plant that's going to make the biggest uh, uh, difference and also that can be measured uh, at different points in time. And of course, that's kind of a complex question. Uh, there are whole classes on measuring grassland, shrubland uh, systems and mm -hmm. which methods give you the best results. and. And um, it's probably um, too complex a subject to go into too far. Um, but the bottom line is to think about what you want more of or what you don't want more of and use that as a, uh, as a, as a guide, as a focus for what it is you would measure. Mm -hmm. And probably too understanding to some degree the limitations of an individual site for what they can and cannot produce, um, you know, in, in PFC, one of the biggest and most difficult questions is defining potential. You know, what what could and should be here? Do you have any thoughts on how one can define potential for a rangeland site? It's, um, it, it is uh, an, an essential first step to have in your mind an idea of what can happen, what can become. And of course, um, potential is, is the tool for that, is the concept for that, or the label for the concept. It's really fairly complex because it's not just the plant community, it's also the soil on uplands. And uh, of course, we know the soil and the plant community have five uh, forming factors. It's the, the parent material, the topography, the uh, weather or climate of the area, the biota, and how much time we have. And um, and so those things come together for various places on the land to give us different plant communities that naturally occur in different places. In riparian areas, we have um, the water, not just from the weather, but also from the water catchment Water, some people call them watersheds, other people call them water catchments. I like water catchment because it focuses on the job of a, mm -hmm. of a catchment to capture, store, and safely mm -hmm. release the water. And by slowly releasing the water, we have water available near the surface where the plants grow for a much longer part of the year than we do typically on uplands. But the water is so essential to which plants grow where and that's true on uplands and riparian areas. We also have the soil, which is very good at storing water because it's a sponge. And organic matter in the soil is particularly good at that. 
some people are very focused on uh, soil carbon, and sometimes they want to do that for um, greenhouse gas purposes. I've always been of the opinion that it does the producer far more good for themselves to put carbon in the soil than uh, the benefit to the world uh, because it's so valuable to uh, storing water and nutrients for the plants that are at the heart of production. Yeah, that brings up a, a question that I've only pondered some. You know, most of the most of the monitoring methods that we discuss are really focused on uh, measuring the drivers of change, which is the vegetation. Uh, but there's a little bit of stuff out there on on measuring, I guess, these uh, secondary or, or downstream indicators of things like uh, soil health that are the function of healthy vegetation. Um, you know, one of the ones that I think is more difficult to measure is uh, soil organic matter, even though that may be a, a big deal long term. Uh, what are your thoughts on trying to measure soil health? There's some methods like, uh, you know, like the the monitoring manual published by the Hornada Experimental Range that recommend uh, explicitly using uh, you know measurements of of soil stability. Um, you know, measuring soil aggregate stability. Um, any, any thoughts on that? What What comes to mind, I have not actually measured that a lot. I have applied that technique, and, and I had a grad student doing it for a while on, on some sites. Um, and I've been in some conversations where we talked about whether to have that technique as a focus in our handbook. Mm -hmm. And um, we so far haven't gone there, uh, partly because uh, it may not be a very fast to respond indicator. Mm -hmm. um, it, it may be a little bit like water quality, which we also don't recommend that people monitor. It's a lagging because indicator. It's a, yeah. It is exactly that. It's a lagging indicator. And I, I think it's probably uh, more useful to people to see what's going on with the leading indicators. Mm -hmm. And that's the drivers of change. Um, and so uh, I would focus on the vegetation. But, but I've also said for a long time that um, what's really important about rangeland plants is what's below ground. We see what's above ground, and of course, what's above ground provides a leaf area for the photosynthesis that drives root growth. But what is really important for rangeland health is the root growth that's going on below the, the surface of the soil because that's so important to supplying moisture and nutrients to the leaves for the actual growth, but also because it's so important over the long term to the soil. And uh, my graduate research was on uh, the study of infiltration. And as I thought a lot about infiltration, I realized that so much of the process of getting the water to go into the soil instead of running off is driven by what's going on below ground. And it's soil organic matter, it's macropores, it's uh, groups of soil particles that are held together in PEDs because of their organic matter that allows the soil to have structure so that it has spaces between the PEDs and, um, and all that allows the water to go in. And of course, the water is the limiting factor on most of our rangeland. And you're saying that measuring the, the leading indicators uh, functions as a useful proxy for understanding what's going on below ground? Yes. Yeah, we probably don't have the time or the energy or the money to monitor what's going on below ground. And yeah. so we focus on what we can see, but there's a connection between what's going on above ground and what's going on below ground. But you want to monitor, excuse me, you want to manage what, what you do with the above ground parts through grazing or fire or whatever tools you're using with an eye and a thought to what is happening to the root systems below ground. So canopy cover, litter cover, basal cover, those are all um, indicating that there's root occupation of the soil profile below ground uh, that's useful hydrologically. Yes, and it's all about how plants grow. So, um, you know, after a plant grows leaves, it has to use those leaves to be able to capture sunlight and, and create uh, car carbon in a in a solid form from the uh, gaseous form in the atmosphere, so that it can be uh, become soil well become plant material and then also become soil organic matter. What about monitoring methods in ecosystems that have 
you know, say 100% ground cover where you have uh, – just to, to back up, you know, in, in a shrubland or a shrub step ecosystem, uh, it's – there are more discrete edges to canopy cover and ground cover that are more readily measurable. Uh, you know, but say in a ponderosa pine grass forest type where you've got 20, 24 inches of precipitation and mostly solid ground cover – it seems like it gets more difficult uh, to directly measure some of those things. Uh, what are what are useful monitoring methods that have been used or that you've seen used in slightly more music ecosystems, uh, like in a in a dry forest type? Or the other example that uh, comes to mind is a um, a riparian meadow. Sure. And uh, so, uh, depending upon um, what you're going to do with the data and what questions you're trying to answer, you might use um, something like line point intercept. You might use a series of quadrats where you visually estimate, estimate the relative cover of different plant communities, plant species within that uh, little plot. And you might also um, use a technique that uh, Alma Winward uh, wrote about uh, oh, almost 20 years ago, um, where you have a transect and you identify plant communities by name and you record the relative amount of that transect that is covered by a plant community and not spend so much time collecting the data about the individual plants in the community. You just mm -hmm. develop a label for the whole plant community and then you can measure that as a, as a pace transect. Mm -hmm. um, or if you're using the quadrats like uh, multiple indicator riparian monitoring does, um, you have a visual estimate of the plants in the quadrat, but you can also um, analyze those data by plant community. Yeah, so that's providing extremely useful information, but it's not quite so technically rigorous where you're asking someone to write down species codes and drop a pin a thousand times. Yes, that, that can be rather tedious. And, yeah. and of course, most producers probably don't want to do that, but they do want to have a sense of what's happening. So another thing to, to uh, use for that purpose is uh, dominant plants and not very many of them, but the, the key species or the dominant species, the kinds of species that you might set objectives for. And then you'd look for indicators of whether those particular species are increasing. And of course, if those species are ones that are highly visible, they stand out from their neighbors um, because they're um, taller or a different color or, a, or whatever, uh, they become more easily recognizable. And of course, um, training helps a person a lot as they're monitoring to learn to know the species. And of course, the sharper your eye gets, the easier it becomes to sort out the ones that you're really looking for. But indicator species are generally a useful tool. Mm -hmm. As long as you understand what, what you're trying to actually accomplish with those indicator species or avoid. I think for a lot of ranchers, the, the entry point for monitoring is going to be uh, fixed point repeat photography. Uh, we visited a little bit about that with Floyd Reed a while back, uh, but I'm curious, what would you, if you were giving somebody, you know, a, a quick start guide to doing photo monitoring in a way that would be useful for both rangelands and riparian zones, uh, how would you tell someone to start? I think the first place um, to start is uh, with a thought process, maybe a conversation again with um, your neighbors or family or, or uh, professionals, associates, about where on the ground is representative of what is important. Uh, across our rangeland, we have a whole diversity of potentials of soils, of different plant communities that are or that could be. And um, some of them are just going to be little patches, and we probably can't afford to manage the whole ranch on just that little patch. Others are maybe going to be a critical area that somebody is going to be particularly interested in because it's the patch where uh, a listed species occurs. Maybe then it becomes more important. But for most ranchers with their 
primarily interested in is is uh, keeping their soil covered and their range productive. So they're interested in the most productive species that are forage species for their livestock. Maybe forage species or habitat species for uh, big game animals or other wildlife species that provide part of the economic base for the ranch. Um, but it it could be a variety of things depending upon what's driving the motivation for monitoring. But the question is, where on the land do you have a unit of that, whatever it is, that is big enough and um, accessible enough that it and a place where your management is likely to make a difference in that um, so that you choose a key area to represent something bigger and important. That key area then becomes the place for the photograph. Sometimes in riparian areas, we call those um, monitoring locations designated monitoring areas. Uh, in uplands, we tend to call them key areas, but the concept is usually pretty similar. It's a part of the creek or a part of the land that we think is important and reflective of the kind of management we're doing. So it's probably gonna be getting use and um, variable use depending upon the quality of our management. And, um, and therefore, probably a variable response in the vegetation depending upon the quality of our management. And, uh, and once we have that area, then the next question is, how do we show that in a photo so that somebody else who's not as familiar with the ground as we are could see in that photograph what it is that is um, changing or that might change or that we want to show them. Uh, sometimes you want a landscape photograph. Sometimes you want a plot shot photograph, an area about the size of a, of a desktop um, or smaller, half a desktop, so that you can see the individual species in that plot. And often having a combination of both is a great tool. Sometimes people lay out a transect and take a whole series of photographs along that transect because they realize that any one little spot on the ground may not be representative of all the changes that are going on in that plant community. But if you have a transect, you're, you're gonna wanna be able to use that transect over and over again. So you need to have some sort of a marker uh, that allows you to go there and take repeat photographs. Uh, even if you're taking a landscapes shot, you want to be able to go to the same place and you want to have the people who look at the early and the late photographs from that place see along with you that it is the same place. So it's useful to have some horizon in the photograph or um, a particularly um, odd looking rock or uh, plant or, or maybe a T-post. Uh, of course, T-posts or um, other kinds of things sometimes become a bit of an attractive nuisance and attract the, the animals for rubbing or something like that. So you want to avoid that. Uh, maybe you have a T-post, but then you go um, 20 yards in a particular direction from the T-post to actually establish your photo point. Um, there's a variety of ways of marking things, but, but getting to the same place over and over again and having it clear to whoever looks at the photograph that you are in the same place over and over again is mm -hmm. really pretty important. Mm -hmm. I want to say it was uh, Ken Sanders and Wayne Burkhart who described uh, their recommendation for monitoring a while back as uh, extensive versus intensive. I think their point was that in a heterogeneous landscape, uh, you know, if we measure, if we pick a spot, whether it's a key area or a sensitive location and measure it intensively, uh, we may we may really be missing the variability of a site, and so they recommended, you know, for example, having uh, a lot of photo monitoring plots rather than having two spots or two uh, monitoring sites, say in a five thousand acre piece of ground where you're measuring a lot of things. Uh, what do you think about that kind of extensive versus intensive monitoring? I think that um, that's a good thing. We've understood for a long time with uh, sampling uh, 
that a lot of subsamples from a very small area doesn't tell you about anywhere else. And, uh, and sometimes you want to know about bigger pieces of ground. The, the value for a key area is that if you are going to collect some uh, repeat data, uh, it's kind of hard to sort out the variation in your um, sampling from the variation in the plant community. And you may need to have lots of subsamples in order to be able to sort that out hmm. statistically. Um, if that's your objective, then you may need to collect a lot of data at a small point. But um, one of the problems, one of the challenges that most or many riparian, many rangeland scientists have, I believe, is that they're so focused on that statistical analysis that they lose sight of the scale of the ranch or of the landscape, the rangeland that they're managing. And there is so much variation across the landscape because of the, not only the differences in potential, but also the differences in where animals go and where um, phenomenon like fire happens and floods happen and so forth. And so having that big picture is very useful. If it becomes so many places you can't get to them all, um, then probably have a short list that you make sure you get to, as well as a long list that you also get to, but maybe not as often. So for routine monitoring, do you recommend that people visit a site annually, or is it sufficient uh, to take a photograph or collect some data every five years, knowing that you know every fifth year might represent, uh, might not represent, um, you know, say average weather, for example? I don't know that there's a standard answer to that question, but I think that it it's very much connected to what is the change you're afraid of? What mm -hmm. is the change you're expecting to see? And how long was, will that likely take? Mm -hmm. um, so um, um, it probably also has to do with how much, uh, how much effort it takes. And if it's uh, just out the back door and you can easily do that every uh, every year, or if it's along a road that you're traveling every year, then uh, getting photos on a particular date or a particular week out of the year is not a huge burden. And striving to do that is a good idea. Even if you miss a few, at least you've got most of them. Uh, Ken Sanders had an, a fascinating set of photos, uh, he and Lee Sharp in Southern Idaho, of a plant community that they took a photo of at the same week every year for decades. And it was amazing how much change there was in that plant community because of differences in weather, and in their case, also uh, insects. And uh, it was just a, a fascinating um, series of uh, photos. And uh, they were tracking variables you can't control. They were, yeah. Yeah. And of course, in other places, we're very much dependent on what we do in order to get what we get. And because we can control those changes, they're the ones that we'd particularly want to monitor to see about the quality of our management. In my discussion with Nathan Sarah, we discussed the idea of uh, thresholds, even with grazing management. You know, one of the one of the cases that he makes in the book is that uh, his book, um, Politics of Scale, The History of Rangeland Science, makes the case that there are a number of things that we can't control uh, that, that drive long-term uh, vegetation change and that uh, we often treat livestock grazing as if it's the primary variable, but that there's likely a threshold, um, you know, below which livestock grazing is not a primary variable but once we hit that threshold you know that we could that we could call overgrazing however we want to find that once you hit that threshold uh, then that becomes the the variable that swamps out everything else it seems like it'd be a little difficult to find out where that is in a given landscape but uh, our goal with management is certainly to avoid hitting that threshold uh, yeah, uh, thresholds that um, provide a tipping point uh, in something that, especially ones that could take us in the wrong direction or maybe take us in the right direction, I guess either way, um, are huge. There, There's books written about tipping points. Yeah, I think part of where I was going with that is, you know, how are there, are there thresholds the other direction? You know, to what extent can we make improvement 
in a degraded landscape happen more quickly using well-managed livestock grazing versus just uh, you know do no wrong or cause no harm? Well, certainly the the whole uh, concept of targeted grazing is uh, one that a lot of people are paying attention to these days. And the recognition is that uh, plants have been grazed for a very long time. And because of their evolution toward uh, adaptation, toward being able to handle that grazing, um, some grazing can be a good thing. And the question isn't only, as you sort of alluded, how much, it's also when, uh, at what time, for how long, and on what sort of a rotation among seasons from one year to another. Um, so there's there's various attributes of the phenomenon of grazing, but certainly grazing can is a double-edged sword. It can it can cut in both directions. The the publication that that you guys put out, um, the monitoring guide, I think is likely applicable to much of the West, at least places that have semi-arid ecosystems dominated by shrubs and grasses. What what are your thoughts on that? You know, for example, Washington State doesn't have a lot of people working in rangelands, and uh, we do not have a Washington specific monitoring guide and a lot of states don't. Uh, is yours applicable all over the West? I think so. Uh, and, and the reason it is, is because it isn't about any particular one or few of the kinds of plant communities we have in Nevada. And we have a, a huge diversity. We've got well over a thousand ecological sites. In fact, we've got over a thousand ecological sites that have sagebrush in Nevada. So a lot of diversity. Um, mm. We've also got uh, other major types of plant communities from salt desert shrub near bare soil all the way uh, to alpine bare soil at the other end with uh, a whole diversity of plant communities in between. What what we're really, um, I think, trying to convey in this is this idea that in different places, there's a lot of ideas that drive us towards wanting to accomplish something. And out of all that, there's certain things that are more important than others. And identifying your priorities on your ranch on a given landscape is sort of step number one. That ought to drive your objectives and that ought to drive your long-term monitoring. But the other thing that our third edition of the Nevada Rangeland Monitoring Handbook is, I think, also emphasizing is that in order to accomplish our objectives, we have a management strategy. And the management strategy ought to drive our short-term monitoring or our implementation monitoring. What is it that we're doing that we need to do, we need to know about how well we did it, in order to be able to interpret this question of whether we made progress toward our objectives. And if our strategy is about our season of use, that's a different thing than if our strategy was the intensity of use. If our strategy is dormant season grazing, then season of use is hugely important. If our strategy is about duration of use and and therefore, probably the amount of stress that we're putting on our favorite plants because they get grazed over and over and over again, even with light stocking, sort of a graze the best and leave the rest problem, then we need to know about the duration of the grazing period. And if our strategy is to not graze the same place at the same time year after year, when did we graze each place? We have a tendency sometimes in monitoring to monitor at the pasture scale because that's the scale of our animal management. Mm -hmm. In some landscapes, we have pastures that are big enough that we could have year-long grazing, but have no particular place in that pasture get grazed more than a fraction of that overall time period. And we would need to monitor by use area when our grazing occurs, perhaps also at the intensity of the grazing and the duration, and when it doesn't occur, so that we can think about when plants have an opportunity to grow and regrow. You mentioned uh, Floyd Reed. He's the lead author on the Grazing Response Index uh, paper, and we've become very interested in that paper that came out in Rangelands in 1999 that mm -hmm. has this simple four-point scale for not only the in 
intensity, but also the frequency of grazing, the duration, really, and the opportunity for plants to grow and regrow, which is worth um, t- two points instead of one for intensity and one for frequency. Mm-hmm. Um, what it doesn't have in it is a point for rotation. So we did a series of workshops in Nevada last year about whether we should add a point for rotation. And even though all five of the ranches that we did the workshop on were using that idea of mixing it up from year to year to year, the ranchers really didn't like the idea of adding a point for that. They thought the grazing response index was great just the way it is, but we can also track other things. I think that's a a pretty good summary. Uh, What what is one thing that you want listeners to remember from this conversation? Start with uh, thinking about what it is you're trying to accomplish, what is important, what are the drivers of change on the land, and which of those do you have control over or some control over? And from that, what are the changes that can happen, that you want to happen? What are your objectives? The objectives drive long-term monitoring or effectiveness monitoring about how well you're accomplishing your objectives. But also think about your strategies, what it is that you as a manager are doing in order to accomplish that change or avoid the weed infestation or unwanted change. And that drives what you monitor about what you do. The records you keep about what you do and what you get are useful only if you intend to use them and will use them to think about needed changes, opportunity for changes in management. It's really all about adaptive management. That's the purpose of monitoring. It's also useful for telling the story, but the real payoff is in being able to adapt your management and get better and better at doing the job you're doing, a tremendously complex job, but a tremendously important job. There may not be any more sustainable way to create food for people than with rangeland grazing when it's well managed. I agree 100%. Uh, We will be putting a link to the monitoring manual uh, on the the show notes website. Uh, Sherm, thank you for your time. You're absolutely welcome, Tip. It's been a pleasure. I'm, I'm honored and, and uh, I'm delighted that you're doing these podcasts. It sounds like you've had some fascinating conversations. I want to tune in to uh, listen to some of those. Uh, you've uh, spoken about some people that I have tremendous respect for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.